0: Here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned.
1: Immaculate.
0: Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastorp. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the British post-punk new wave band. It was The Passions, whose famous single I'm in Love with a German film star. Only came out 40 years ago. I know I'm on the cutting edge here. But uh, very recently, I spoke to one of the main members of the band. It is the one and only Barbara Gogan to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. We love all that, don't we? Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Take it away, Barbara.
2: Well, you know, when I was a young teenager, um, I grew up in South Dublin and we used to all go after school to hang out at this place called Murray's Record Center. And there was a basement that had the most incredible jukebox. Right. And, you know, like Wilson Pickett and et cetera, et cetera. And then there were a lot of people and it was mainly the boys. You know, they'd all play guitars. And, you know, we'd all kind of hang out. And then I was thinking one day, God, I want to get a guitar, too. And then my mother was very worried about me not coming home at night and stuff at the age of 14. And so she um, made me go to boarding school. And as as a consolation prize, she bought me an acoustic guitar and so that's really kind of where i started but there was there was a lot of music around you know from ireland there's always a lot of music around yes. in ireland you know it's just part of the thing everybody sings if you go to a party you know you've got to have a piece you've got to have a piece you got to have something that you can do you know sing do a dance whatever it is say a poem and that still is the case in Ireland and a lot of places, especially if you get outside of Dublin.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know? God. And so, did you and yeah. did you find your voice quite early on? Did you sort of mm-hmm. have quite a confident manner of singing?
2: I guess I did. I yeah. And then um we went to this one school for a year, me and one of my sisters and one of my brothers where we it was uh, we spoke Irish all the time. It was a boarding school. I was eleven. We went there for a year, and I remember we learned a lot of Irish songs, and my dad would always be getting me to sing the songs for his friends, you know, in um, in Irish. So there was this thing that I did have this pretty voice, but I, I didn't like that. I always wanted to be a guitar player. I never really thought to be a singer. It yes. kind of annoyed me, you know. <laughs> but I know it sounds crazy, but... Now I can, now I do, you know, I let myself enjoy singing, you know, more. Yes. But,
0: um And was there any uh, particular song mm-hmm. or artist that you became kind of like interested in or kind of like, that's interesting, you know, uh, like.
2: Uh, oh, yeah, well, for sure, Joni Mitchell. I mean, that was, she's like, and still, you know, because she's always on that adventure of music as well, you know what I mean? That doesn't, she doesn't do the same thing twice. Yes. So, absolutely. But I remember the first band that I ever saw was a band called The Granny's Intentions. And I think I was about 13 or 14 when we went to see them play. I my two friends, Michelle and Sylvia, and we were like right up the front, you know that. And I remember... All oh, the girls were like sort of trying to get them to shake their hands, and I was just standing there going, "I want to do that." <laughs> That's what <laughs> I felt, right? I want to be doing that. Yes. Anyway, so yeah, you know, I did. I did catch it very early on that you know. And
0: was was were yeah. people kind of generally forming bands in your community and neighbourhood? Because I, I sort of come from the East Anglian region of the UK, and actually, when I look back, it's like people didn't really, you know, there were a few people, but not very close to me formed a few bands, and they were just kind of pub bands, I suppose, and that was it. There was never, there wasn't that culture, but then I think it was the countryside of East Anglia that was yeah. a bit sort of, yeah, didn't it didn't have a great amount of like, wow, yes, that person came from here, and so did that person.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, again, like back to Irish culture, right, it's very, very different, and I remember being at a party... One of my brothers, and you know, towards the end of the party, what what would happen is like the guitars would come out and everybody starts singing. Or you'd have to do your thing. And there were these two young English women there, and they were saying to me, "We're so ashamed. We don't have a song. We don't have a song." It's almost like it got beaten out of everybody in England. You know what I mean? That natural thing to sing or to to make music. Because I mean, life. I'm I'm reading this book at the moment about feudalism. Right. Life. In Britain and Germany and France and all those feudalistic countries, what a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I mean, the cruelty that was inflicted upon people by the nobles and lords and all the rest of it, right? You know, so a lot of that stuff, I mean, people got you know, really brutalized.
0: Yes, and I think the only time... Hmm? I was was going to say, the only time we did sort of music a little bit like that was at school, and we'd have to practice the hymns for the following week, you know, and it was just like these kind of rather dreadful songs that we used to do. Oh. And, um, all and about head, God. Yeah, all mm-hmm. about God. And, and then we, and yeah. we'd get shouted at and then told you couldn't sing to stand at the back. And you, you felt, you know, I think you'd think, God, I was only about eight or five at <laughs> the time. Right. So, right. so um, yeah. it, was quite, it was quite terrifying because the headmaster was just like, he was quite relentless at his hymn practice, it was called on a Friday for the following week. I don't, yeah. looking back on it, it was yeah. like primary school. So, yeah, it was all those things about... God and mm-hmm. serving in spirit, you know, and, and the Lord's Prayer and, and feeling quite like confused because you thought the Holy Ghost, what's the Holy Ghost? It's like, don't don't talk. It. You know, it's like no one ever gave you the answers to what the Holy Ghost was, but it just sounded like a ghost that was holy, you know. And I mean, you know, when you're so really, watching everything. Yeah. You know, you, you're just well. still sitting getting used to, you know, and also it was a bit confusing. Um, you know, one minute you'd be talking about you know baby Jesus, and next minute you'd be talking about Easter. You know, when you're quite young, it all just seemed a bit rather, you know. So they nailed him to a cross, did they? Oh my God, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So so, it it was all. You look at that from
2: another perspective, right? And you think, wow, we're worshiping someone who got tortured to death, Mm. right? That's our ideal. And, you know, and also in this incredible book, it also talks about the role of the church. The church played in suppressing all these peasant revolutions that were going on constantly, right? Because we always think, oh, peasants were so stupid and dumb. They didn't know what was going on. They were happy to be out there digging the fields, right? Oh, no, they were not. They did not want to be paying those taxes, and they did not want to be told who they could marry and who they couldn't marry, right? So they were constant Uprisings all the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth century, all across Europe, right? Mm. And the church came in and battened everybody down, along with the cler- along with the nobles. You know, yes. they they joined forces because they were accumulating huge wealth. You know, all that the Rome. You know, as the pre. Uh, Martin Luther and uh, Henry VIII and Protestantism and all the rest of it—they were, you know, they were the the they were banning, started to ban marriage, for example. And marriage was originally legal within the Christian church, but then nope, because the wives and children were going off with the property, and so <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. So were, yeah. Well, I do. All I, like
0: I do remember sort of the 18. Yeah, you know, we did study the 1800s. You know, that industrial ah, revolution and yep. so much kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, so all the, about the education laws, about sort of sanitation, about sort of like control of people, the birth of the city and I suppose, you know, the first night shifts and this kind of like this great drive to sort of like start producing and economic growth that again sort of really benefited a few people and absolutely sort of tortured everybody else, you know, both in yep. in the cities and on the land as well. So, you know, that uh-huh. kind of class divide, sort of coupled with, you know, the obviously the church, and, and that was huge, really. So, um, I know, my God, no wonder we were oppressed. Yes, it's just...
2: I know, <laughs> no, I know. I mean, by capital punishment in, you know, in Britain, um, there was, you know, you could be hanged for, like, minor offences, right? And we always hear about, you know, uh, women being burned at the stake as witches and all the rest of it. Burning people in barrels was also a thing that happened right up until the sixteenth century, right that people would be burned in barrels for committing whatever crime you know what I mean one huge crime was called coining, which was counterfeiting money right like that a man would be hanged, and a woman would be burned in a barrel burned to death right that's for for for, for counterfeiting money yes. that's how that's how keen that lot were on gaining riches right making sure that nobody else got to look in right
0: yes i know it's it is quite frightening really isn't it so it um, is right yeah yeah, no absolutely no it's kind of and and sort frightening and depressing at the same time terrible combination (laughs) really but um,
2: well we're trying to work our way out of it at the moment right i mean and it has led to all kinds of disasters hasn't it this absolute obsession with the accumulation of money i mean it's it's killing us right you know it's it's, it's global warming, climate change, That's what it's all about, right, isn't it? Yes, you know, absolutely. It's endless, you know, making these, you know, tons and tons of plastic goods that last uh, six months and then you've got to buy a new one and, you know what I mean, no one can fix anything anymore and we're just chucking things away as if there was any such thing as a way, which no. there isn't. It's right.
0: It's crazy. You know, it's a crazy it business. It is,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, we're out of control. It is out of but control. We're trying. I mean, I think we're trying to get better. I mean, I do feel like I do feel hopeful. I think, you know, what happened at COP26? It's not perfect, but there was a lot of really, really good discussion there about, you know, what we need to be doing as a species.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I think I think the from that that you know the the discussion has changed, hasn't it? There is no kind of. Yep. Um, the, the the time for saying it doesn't exist is is kind of over that, that, that kind of discussion which has dragged on for, for 40 years yeah, has right. thankfully not sort of pe- you know no one's gone oh by the way it's all made up because you know in the past there was always those kind of politicians who just said we'd go on the radio and say it's all rubbish and, and you know you had to have that equal balance on news you know the BBC had to have an equal voice even yeah. though that that other voice was like yeah but that's wrong but you, you know so a lot of people still believed it but now that hasn't has, hasn't sort of been sort of heard anymore and I think that will will go because actually you know it's like well it, it's ridiculous to keep sort of ha- harking on about that so um right it's a tricky one it's a tricky one, isn't yeah. it? blind me, yeah. but anyway, look, yeah. taking us to the, the the good old days, the seventies full, yeah. full of <laughs> <laughs> so, then, yes, so after school did you did you sort of leave Ireland at this stage?
2: I went to live in France for two years um, when I graduated from you know secondary school or high school or whatever yes, uh, when I was eighteen, i lived yeah i went to I went to art college for Couple of terms in Lyon, and then I didn't have any money, and so I wound up being invited to go and live in this commune of people who had they bought this old village in uh, after '68 in Paris. So they were all incredibly old, aged about twenty-four, twenty-five, <laughs> yes. and uh, they were looking for people to move into this village with them. They were well, they weren't exactly refugees in '68, but they were people who'd been very involved. In all of that, you know what happened in May '68 there. Yes.
1: Um,
2: and so I lived there for quite a while, and then sort of travelled around. And then it it was right before that was 1972, and it was right before the Common Market. So as an Irish citizen, I would have had to have a work permit to work there then. You know, to have a work yeah. visa still. And so I was, you know, I was really struggling to make a living and to make just make ends meet and um, not really wanting to be in the commune anymore. And I mean, not for any particular reason. I just was like constantly moving, you know, and just um, and so I went to live in London. Basically, that's how I wound up in London. If, I, if it had been a year later and I could have worked in France, I probably would have been still there.
0: Stay um, there. But, but no, you're in, in London. But No. But that, yeah. that must have been kind of quite, I wouldn't say it was, I mean, that was kind of, at the time, quite a poor, you know, I mean, Britain was kind of a bit, yeah, it wasn't great, was it? 77, 75 time, was it? in Or 76
1: in London?
2: Well, when you're 19 and 20, you don't need a lot, right? And, you know, we all, uh, basically, when I arrived there, I had a friend from Dublin, I stayed at his uh, flat for a, couple of weeks and then people were moving into squats and I moved, I went down the road and there were people who just, you know, broken into this house Four St. Luke's Road. It's very posh house these days. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, was, what was happening was basically a little bit similar to now where the, you know, there was a big recession happening in England at the time and um, anybody with money was putting their money into assets. Uh, like houses and buildings. And so London was filled with empty houses because that's what anybody with any money had done. they just bought up houses, but they didn't want to rent them out because then you had tenants' rights. And right. so there were a lot of protections for, for tenants in those days. I don't know what it's like now, but those days there were... So there were just like thousands of empty properties all over the city. Every single person I knew at the time pretty much, was living in a squat. So we didn't need very much money to live, right? I think I worked, like, two days a week typing for this lawyer down in Westbourne Grove, and that was enough money to live, you know? Yes, I know, uh, and so, and
0: also it's just a mattress on the floor, let's face it, with a, you know, and things... Yeah. We used to go skip hunting, well, not hunting for skips, but just looking in skips and sort of getting whatever Hopefully. you needed. And, um, yes, yeah. you know, it was, it was, yeah, you just made do, didn't you, really, with... I don't yeah. know. I eating a lot of TVP well, and you know, right
2: exactly. You know a lot of those vegetable medleys, <laughs> and yes. rice, um, yeah, uh, so, couscous. So, yeah. yeah, I know it was all t- you know, and a, it was so cheap actually. Pints.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. Happy hour in the pub. That was fine. That's all you needed really, wasn't it? Exactly,
2: exactly. And <laughs> um, so you know that. So that I mean, I, for me, it was a fantastic time. And I do. I think you know all that amazing music that came out of. England at that time, and all those bands in London, you know, I mean, that was an amazing time for music, because we weren't having to do huge, huge, huge amounts of work in order to pay our landlords, you know, to pay rent, you know, that, that was an enormous saving, I mean, having lived in New York for years, and, you know, you, you wind up, you know, most of your time is spent making enough money to pay for your dwelling, so, you know, there's no time for music, or, or very little
0: yes absolutely no it would be yeah. you know it was it was very different you know and i do remember sort of when you were on the dole you'd i think it was about 35 pound a week and actually it sort of you you could make it last you know and um Thank you. And frankly, we didn't have central heating as well, so I that was like, <laughs> so that was quite cheap actually. It was like get the
1: gas ovens on. It was
0: just yeah, the gas to boil yeah. water, to make coffee and tea, really. So um, yeah, yes, yeah. and have the oven. Where, where did you
1: live in those days? Where it was it was in
0: Norwich. You know, we were in Norwich, okay. and it was it was for a while. Oh. It was the anti-poll tax house of Norwich, so it was all very exciting uh-huh. and yes, yeah. full of young anarchists running around. You know, talking. Exactly. You know, we we talked about Thatcher <laughs> most days. Every day right. in fact we did for the eighties. That was that was it. So you went from being an artist. What sort of art were you doing at that stage, by the way?
2: Well, I mean I think me being that was a little bit like I just didn't want to go and be I was supposed to be a lawyer. So I had my place in college back in Dublin to go and be a lawyer and I didn't want to do that. And so I just needed to stay away. And so, you know, I announced to my parents I think you were quite glad to see the back of me because there are a lot of kids in my family. Right. Um, so I said, I'm not coming home. I'm going to go to art college. And so that that's also why it didn't last, you know. I mean, I was always more of a musician than an, an artist and I never have painted or anything since then, you know.
1: So. Yes.
0: So did you, I mean, when when was, was um, forming the band, was that quite organic and quite straightforward in the sense of, been around lots of other people in squats and various other youthful community groups?
2: Well, the first band was the Derelicts. Um, so that was, like, I think, was it was 73 or 74. And we were all squatting on a street called Latimer Road. And Richard, who was also then in the Passions later, but he, he was the one who could actually... He could play drums... And he had a drum kit. And then I, of course, had this acoustic guitar. But then my friend Sue Allegro was working at uh, the Fender Soundhouse. And she called me up one day and she said, Go and find, I forget it was 20 or 30 pounds. She said, I'm sending a man over to your house and he has an electric guitar and an AC30 amplifier and you're going to buy it. And I did. And then that was the beginning of the band. And then we, we, I think we did our first gig about a week later. We just <laughs> decided we got a room above a pub uh, up in Charleston um, or somewhere. And we just rented out this room. We didn't rent, have to rent the room. We got the room for free and we had our own PA. We very quickly accumulated all these things and, uh, and then we started doing these, these gigs under this, the name The Derelicts. And my sister Sue was the singer. I was guitarist. And there were various cast of characters. There's a, actually, someone's done a Wikipedia page on it. Right. On the Derelicts. We never recorded anything, but we did a lot of gigs. We actually wound up making our living playing gigs. We got quite popular in that. We couldn't get any gigs in like regular venues because... Well, basically, I mean, it sounds insane to say this at the time, but at the time it was very hard if there were women in the band to actually get a gig in a regular venue, right? Right, blame And so we, yeah, I know it sounds mad, doesn't it? Now, when you think of it now, right? But it, that's how it was, and so we never, you know, we just didn't get gigs in regular venues. That began to change as the seventies wore on, obviously, right? Mm. You know, into 7, six seventy-seven, that was all. That all changed, but that then. We would get our own places, and we'd had all our own gear. And then we would charge like three quid at the door, and then people would get their drinks in the in the pub, you know, downstairs. So we had that one place in Harleston, What was it called? I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, and then we had another one over in Islington, and we would like do one week there in Islington. In Islington, we would did, did it as a benefit with this uh, feminist magazine called Spare Rib.
0: Oh, brilliant! Which, yes,
2: Spare
1: Rib. Yes, Spare Rib. Right. Yeah. And
2: then we split the proceeds. And there was another all-woman band over there called the Stepney Sisters as well. And we used to do gigs with them too. And um, so, but then you know, so then as we got more popular, which did happen, and we had this. Incredible posters. My sister Sue used to make these huge silk screen posters advertising our gigs, and we would go out in the dead of night and put them up in like all kinds of weird places on bridges and all. You know, not the usual spots that people put their posters up. And um, and then one day this guy showed up at one of our gigs and offered us a residency at the Red the Red Lion, it was called I think. And then we got another residency at the Nashville. So suddenly we were in the mainstream, you know what I mean? We were getting these gigs and then we just broke up and Sue and, and John went off and formed Prague Vec and, and I did nothing for about a year. I remember I auditioned for Rat Scabies and this band but I was too shy and I couldn't play properly. Yes. So I didn't get that gig. And, um, and then Claire, our neighbor, uh, on Latimer Road, she was putting this band together that ultimately became The Passions. So yes, that's kind of,
0: that was the birth of the band actually. And it was kind of yeah. I mean, it was a kind of a beautiful sound. You know, it's kind of I didn't you know, have been sort of playing quite a lot of I suppose actually I was really loving your John Peel sessions you played and um and done those. And it's a great uh-huh. kind of vibe to it. You know, it's I suppose I was also done quite a lot of interviews with um, that no wave, new wave, New York kind of scene, and people like the Bush Tetras. And they, uh-huh. I suppose they were just kind of quite interesting, you know, musical. It wasn't like just your normal blokey pub rock. It, you know, there was some quite, you know, it's, it just had a lot of kind of different influences and styles. And I uh-huh. guess the Passions had something quite similar to going on, you know, with it wasn't yeah. just your regular sort of, um, I don't know, three chord. Rock band, really was it? So, um, so yeah, with, when right. the band first came together, did you were you on a sort of? Did you feel like you were on a bit of a? Did the stars line up? Did it feel like you were sort of like, oh, this is actually quite interesting?
2: Well, yes, and and no. I mean, it was it was always there was always sort of sadness attached in the passions. The original singer was Mitch Barker, and. He was this incredible performer, really charismatic, and totally bonkers, massive drinker, etc., etc., etc. And and he wound up um, really hurting himself badly. He'd get into fights, and then he'd get into hospital, and then he'd break out of hospital, and he'd slip on the ice and break his leg again. I mean, it was just like... he was just a sort of walking disaster. This lovely man, right? Mm.
1: And
2: so... You know, as things were kind of progressing as we started getting you know we uh they getting more and more gigs and getting more popular, it became really, really hard to play with him because he just wasn't there basically at one point he went wound up in the hospital, i think for three months, and so you know we just sort of carried on without him and by the time he got out of that particular stint, you know we had been signed by fiction um and you know and it was really sad it was also really sad for him you know what i mean he never really recovered from that
1: mm.
2: there was also you know there was an original guitarist as well who when the band first there was a lot of sadness attached to in in the past. the, the original guitarist who played the me there uh, was a guy called Dak. died and uh and he and his girlfriend they sort of went on vacation they went away for a month traveling or something and when they were, got, when, while he was away, the 101 Oneers broke up because strummer, Ben Woody, was going off to form the Clash, and their guitarist didn't know what to do with himself, so he sort of showed up in our rehearsal place one day, which was at the back of the squat, and he started playing with us. And then when Dak came back, Clive was sort of in the band, and then Dak was really, really sad about that, and also, I mean, you know, and wound up committing suicide a few years ago, and and uh, you know, I was would talk to him from time to time from here. You know, we'd have these sort of Skype conversations, and and he he still, you know, all this whatever, thirty five years later, you know, regretted, you know, what had happened there, and all he'd done was go on holiday for a month. You know what I mean? And then he was out of the band, and you know, it was you know all that kind of. There was a lot of hurt feelings. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, my God, I do. Right? <laughs> yes, it's
2: um. You know. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at it back look back at that and, yeah, there were some, you know, great things and we were, you know, we did have a lot of fun and we wrote some great songs and we were always inventing new things. We never felt that we were under the ice circle. We never felt I was under any kind of obligation to stick to a formula in terms of music, right? So if you listen to the three albums that we made, they all sound completely different, almost like they're different bands, you know? Yes. Um, so, you know, it's all the adventure of music. Right? But the actual story of the passions is, yeah, it's really sad, a lot of it, you
0: know. I can tell. Blimey. Right. Yes, it's um,
2: yeah.
0: it's a tricky. But normally the sadness comes after mm-hmm. the honeymoon period. Of, I mean, you have a honeymoon period right. and then, then you have the kind of tricky marriage bit and then you have the, the bit where things are starting to sort of get a bit wobbly. But yes, you you sort of did it slightly differently. But then you must, I mean, it must have been incredibly kind of exciting to get those because you got a John Peel session kind of quite quickly didn't you and were suddenly in the Maida Vale studios he loved us
2: he did I know because all those little John Peel
0: sort of um things Uh on YouTube have got him yeah introducing the band or talking about oh that should have been you know that should be on daytime radio one and you know and he was he absolutely loved the band didn't he
2: he did. He 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 voted me singer of the year one year. I couldn't believe it. Like there were so many bands that were so much more well known. But oh my god! Like one of was in the NME, one of those things, you know. Yes. His favorite singer of the year. One. Yeah. So you know, I know he did. What a lovely man, right? I
1: know. And
2: great. I mean, you know, and, and a lot of those jam Peel sessions. That I mean, not just ours, but others are they're actually better than the records, you know. And partly I think it's because, you know, when you go in to make a record, especially not so much the first album that you made, but the second one, the songs are all new. You haven't taken them out on the road and you haven't been playing them, so they can sound a bit stilted. Yes. Whereas, you know, once you, when you come back off the road and you go in and do your John Peel session, you're totally like, you know, you play them with much more confidence and so You know, I mean, not just the passions, but other bands
0: too. Yes, absolutely. No, I always remember that. With um, a few years after that, I love the Smiths, and that first album just sounds really weak production Uh but the then the John Peel session or Dave Jensen as well but anyway the BBC session Full of Hollow compilation came out and it just sounded like oh yeah there's a real richness to the to the sound and and Sonic's you know landscape to it and and it just sounded a lot different and and like oh yes they've got it but then you know I have I I did an interview with the producer who explained what what had gone wrong (laughs) with it because because I think they had somebody who did it who hadn't really got much experience and then the record label said oh god this is terrible could could yeah. you know this guy John Porter could you do something over the weekend and him and he said no i can't you're going to have to redo it but we haven't got much money so they had to really hurry it through so it was a bit of a thing and then the john you know but the john peel session with people like dale griffith you know just sounded so much better so Yes, it, it's a weird one, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. And there was, you know, on that one of them, I think it was your second one, there's, there's some really stunning songs. And again, musically, you were coming from all different angles. There was a single called Hunted, isn't there? Which, again, just sounds brilliant. Can you remember how that or much about how that sort of was written and, and the, the general, I don't know, you know, where that came from?
2: Well, uh, that was a very early song, The Hunted. That was one that we did. For, there was a single that ca- came out, the first single we had out on fiction. Um, and I suppose, you know, the derelict, back to the derelicts time. So the derelicts, the, one of the, a lot of the gigs that we used to do, aside from the, the rooms above the pubs, was at the Acclam Hall and there was a man called Wilf Walker who's still alive and he's being, he's being encouraged to write his uh, autobiography. He used to put... the Ackham Hall at that time was a, commu- a very bare community hall with a stage, and he used to put these gigs on and he would have, among other bands, but he would have the derelicts open for reggae bands. And We used to be particularly paired with Misty and Roots yes. and Misty. So we really were into reggae, and we would play there, and we would do our, like, 30-minute set or whatever, and then Misty would play for hours and hours and hours, and everyone would dance, and so we were really sort of steeped in reggae music, you know, so that was a little... Of a pathetic um, <laughs> after a bit of a reggae vibe, right?
0: Yes, In our little fight, fight way. <laughs> a little so, white, white uh, way, a little white I know, but yes, oh, that's interesting because yeah. I know that because I love that kind of period of reggae, the roots reggae of you know, like you mentioned, Misty, but there was Aswad and Burning Spear, and then yes. Sly and Robbie, yes. and and you know, Gregory Isaacs and Dennis Bryan, and but there was a real you know, there was obviously people from Jamaica, but also a lot of people from London, um, England as well, or Britain, who were doing yeah. reggae, like some yep. of them I just mentioned. And, you know, they those nights around the place were just stunning, really. Uh, so that's where a lot of your, yeah, some of your influence came from.
1: Yeah,
0: right. Right. Nice, nice. And then you also did tours as well. You were going around Europe as well, didn't you? And, um, yes, yeah. you, you were big, big in Europe as well. How did that... That's sort of fair because obviously you know touring can be quite a, like you said, you know when you were young you watched bands and you thought I want to be on stage and then you realise it's quite hard work. How did how did your European tours go?
2: Oh, I love touring. If I could tour for my entire life, I would do it. I just love it. I, I mean, just getting in the bus, you know, you just do, you know exactly what you're doing. You get to the venue, you do your sound check, go get your dinner go whatever you know what I mean go and then play a I mean it's just I just it's a lovely life for me I'm very nomadic anyway you know yes so um yeah I loved all that in fact that's the one thing I've really missed you know it's not being able to talk yeah I
0: always Uh, remember mm -hmm. Mick Fleetwood Mac Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac Mm -hmm. saying that he he you know he he kind of apologizes as he was speaking to the camera to his family and his wife saying look but I just, he said, I just love going to the hotel. I love the linen. I love the soaps. I love the, the kind of yeah. afternoon and then the you know the sound check and then a bit of rest and then going and doing your thing. And yes, he just said that was and you could tell with some people they really that was their life yeah. was just playing yeah. that gig. You know, even though the daytime could be a bit odd, it was the, the yeah. evening and the night in they loved more than anything. Actually, it was yep. just good. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. Italy. Did it was it were you big in Italy?
2: Um, we were, I don't remember the passions being so big in Italy. I've, since then, though, I did quite a lot. And probably um, next summer, I'm going back to Italy with Marco. Um, we have shows in northern Italy. Right. Um. So it's more, it was more in the 90s when I started doing all the work with uh, the French guy, with Hector Zazu. Right. That uh, we... Uh, we, uh, we I've uh, did a lot of we played a lot of shows in Italy. I mean, a lot. I mean, we probably play five or six or something like that. I don't know. But we, <laughs> I felt like we were always going to Italy, for our show. You know, um, and you know they they do like, experiment. I mean, it's a big uh, country for electronic music. Italy, it's more. In fact, they make all this incredible sound equipment there, there too. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that to me. You know, we were we were more like France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Holland. Holland loves the right? Left its accents, right? Um, yeah, like,
0: I was just I did a uh, interview with the the, the guy, uh-huh. one of the, the people from Shelley-Anne Orphan, and um, there was just two of them, uh-huh. and Ian he had had a band as well, but the. the, the the, uh, there was just kind of basically two people driving that outfit and he was just saying that, you know, Italy just loved them and they and they still do, you know, and, and, you know, there's a person who's got a record label who said, look, you know, we'd still love to, if you've got any solo project you want to do, then, you know, we'll we'll fund it. And he's like, oh, OK, thank you very much, I'll do that. I'll do a solo project for you. And that, you know, is kind of ongoing now. So I just wondered if with people like, you know, your your musical career, whether you've you've got those kind of little pockets around the world that people really still... Love you. I know people also there was a band called the Wild Swans who are really big in yeah. the Philippines, I think, or Thailand. You oh, know wow. he said it's yeah. quite strange. He said it's brilliant, but it's just the trouble is, there's no money because everyone can't fit the um, record. So you, you know, it's like you, yeah. you've got you've got a lot of you've got a lot of fans, but um, no one, no one's actually really buying your record, you know. But right.
2: um. and then and then you've got Spotify, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just a joke at the moment, right? About trying to make any kind of money unless you're huge. And even somebody was telling me that even uh, who knows about such things, but that you know, even really big bands, you know, that they can't get Spotify to give them any money. You know, they're just They've just got, they've got all the stuff and everybody keeps putting their music up on Spotify and then they, they control the situation and they, I'll, just, I'll give you an example. Marco and I put, you know, our music and we will maybe get like, I don't know, we get on these little tiny streams if we get like 200, 300 plays or whatever, right? But we, we inadvertently got one of our tracks, uh, Cartwheel, got onto this um, stream that I guess was the algorithm or whatever of this French singer called Barbara, who was huge in the 60s and 70s, and is still a very famous, she's not as famous as François another but anyway, she's a very famous French singer. And somehow Cartwheel got into her stream, maybe because of the Barbara thing. Um, and we suddenly had overnight 10,000 plus plays on this track, right? I was going, whoa, we're going to make some money out of that, right? 10,000 plays, that's, that's pretty good, right? If you had 10,000 plays on the radio in England, you know, how much you would get from that, right? $35. $35. <laughs> yeah. so $35, and, it, you know, that was, I mean, it's just ridiculous what they're up to, right? They just, it and nobody seems to be able to stop them, you know? Just, they... Taking all the money for themselves,
0: right? Not giving any to us. I know it's horrendous. I know it's very sad because you're thinking, "Come on, you know." I know it's just it's like like a lot of you know musicians I spoke to, and that was even before Spotify. You know, just you know having signed really you know bad deals, and just and just was like, God, you know, we weren't asking for a lot, but we would just like to have had a bit more to survive, and and. You know, and I think it's just a shame, you know, that, um, yes, it had that feeling. So when you were, you know, with the band, you know, because what I've, I've kind of discovered, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but me, you know, most bands have that a strange five-year life cycle of getting together and having that honeymoon period, though on your case, obviously, it didn't, wasn't quite a honeymoon. But you do the first album, then the second album, and then, if you're lucky, a third. I mean, when when you were doing your sort of follow-up, you know, with 30,000 Feet Over China, was there was at that stage, did you feel the band were a bit more coherent after the, the slightly difficult kind of early period?
2: Cause I guess that's true, yeah, that that did happen. There was a, a coherence. In, uh, when Claire left, which was incredibly sad, um, but the day that she left, David, we met David, and that was kind of a match made in heaven for us. I mean, he just spitted. For some reason, sonically, we just... Really, yeah, that lineup was definitely, you know, with Clive, Richard, David, and myself. That, and then all the experience that Richard and Da and, and uh, Clive and myself had had with Claire too, of the songwriting and, you know, and touring and, you know, the kind of it's a full-time job when you're in a band like that. I mean, we would rehearse five days a week. If we weren't out, if we weren't in, in the studio or, or uh, on tour, we would be in our rehearsal space every yes. day so you know we had that discipline that was there and then and so yeah there was there was, it was coherent. now however having said that you know that album that second album um, we only had a singles deal at that time with Polydor we weren't signed for an album deal so we were just like we, after Filmstar came out right we could get gigs anywhere and we loved to play gigs so we were just touring all the time and then one day, you know, somebody from the record label kind of started, got in touch with me and started yelling at me, what's going on? Why aren't you in the studio recording one? Wait, 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 wait. We've only got a single still. We've completed our contract, right? And and so then we kind of hurriedly recorded 30,000 Feet, and it never sounded great to me, that album. It never sounded as good as it would have done Lie, I mean, you know, as it would have done if we'd actually had a really... Great producer. I mean, the guy we had was a good engineer, but he he had a coke problem, and he decided when we were recording, he said, "Look, I might be in a bit of a bad mood because I've had a bit of a problem with cocaine, and I'm gonna I'm taking this opportunity to stop." Right. So we had this like recovering coke addict as our producer, and 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 then. You know, and then of course he couldn't continue. So then there'd be like these tons of cocaine everywhere in the studio. When I mean, we weren't into any of that, really, you know, was not thing. Yes. We're like, you know, have a few drinks, kind of characters. You know, so it was an odd experience, and I don't think it was great for him either. And um, you know, so I don't know. Yes. In terms of music, yeah, we were very coherent, and we were, yeah, it was a great lineup. But that album, I never was very happy with. And well, unfortunately... That
0: was, so, yeah, I was going to say, cause was that Nigel Nigel Gray who, yep, yep, who'd worked yep. with the police? My God.
2: Yes, exactly, yeah. And he, But, you know, he'd worked with the police as an engineer, you know what I mean? It wasn't... And so then it was, oh, yeah, he worked with the police, which made kind of sense because there was something a little bit connected with the sound of the police. It was that yeah. coarsey, pretty sound, right? And it did make sense to work with him, you know, on paper. Um, but
0: because you had peter That's, it was peter wilson who produced the single wasn't well, it well yeah yeah, yeah was, the single's
2: yeah. Was, so had, um, we didn't you know we when we got we got dumped by fiction after when claire left and we we, were, we didn't have a label and then Polydor, who was kind of the, you know the umbrella company for fiction yeah they very quickly signed us to a pretty much no money singles deal we I think they might have given us five grand or something like that, but um, we didn't have a recording budget, so we just used the demo studio in Podor itself, and Pete was the in house engineer for the demo studio right and but we just like really kind of hit it off i mean, it was a very easy relationship. So we recorded The Swimmer and Don't Talk To Me, i shy and whatever the, this, the four songs, The Film Star and whatever the other B-side was. Um, what happened was that, of course, Film Star, I mean, yes, you probably know Film Star only ever went to 21 in the charts, and the reason for that was that you couldn't buy it because Polidora had no idea there was this band that they weren't paying any attention to, that they just sort of basically signed just to make sure we didn't disappear. Because they were pissed off with the fiction guy with uh, Parry right, for, for letting us go without letting them know that they were he was doing that and all the rest of it, so but they didn't put anything behind it. there was no promotion, there was no uh you couldn't in those days, in order to get the records in the store, they had to be in the van right so there was only so much room in the van, and <laughs> the passengers was. <laughs> Was not re- highly regarded, so we didn't have a place in the van. So you, you know the stores couldn't get hold of the singles. However, it, just to finish the Pete Wilson stories, that we would have happily continued to work with him because it was a very good relationship. And um, but because of film star, he became really sought after, and he was incredibly busy. And so when to work on you've got to get back in the studio and record an album. Um, you know, they—he uh, wasn't available. Right. He was doing the jam or somebody. You know what I mean? He was sort of doing somebody like, with a much bigger budget, and you know, a lot more. You know, they had money for videos. I mean, you know, Parlophone never—we, we, we never—we had no promotion budget. We had no tour support. We had no videos. That we just had, you know.
0: Yes, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because it? Cause it was, you know, obviously the single that just... I suppose it's like, yeah. you know, any... You know, it's just the one that seems to... Have just kind of hit the charts in a way that you just oh, think, wow, that's you know, or you know, it's kind of, and I, I find it kind of fascinating what what makes a record so memorable because you can't when they they try and have these programs, don't they, where they get, you know, we're right. going to try and write the classic song, so we'll get the best writers and the best engineers and a great singer, and they spend you know one of those documentary films, and then yeah. at the end of it they play the song, and you think, God, this is so boring. It's kind of all right. there, but it doesn't have that something yeah. you know yeah. and you yeah. can't you can't really kind of you can't just conjure it up like a I don't know like a bag of I've, frosties yeah, yeah it's kind of a no. weird one isn't it
2: yeah I mean I, do, I think it is you know it, it's that thing about you know a painter you know spends you know years and years and years and years perfecting their art and then just does one stroke across a canvas and it's just stunning and beautiful but if they hadn't done all those years of like painstakingly like studying their craft, right? Yes. That one stroke across the canvas, you know, or, you know, you get this like Rothko. You know what I mean? You st- those sheets of color, right? And what is it? It's because those people know how to draw. So you know they, um, you know, with music it was like that with film star. I mean, we've been writing songs for years, and you know playing and recording and doing them all and then suddenly look you know it's like it's the one stroke across the canvas it
0: was when when you wrote it did you sort of did you feel like hmm that was that was an you know did it feel quite special at that moment you know the moment yes, you'd sort of
2: it did yeah.
0: yeah yeah it's interesting we
2: knew we knew and i remember leaving the demo studio which was upstairs in the Polidor office and walking down after we'd recorded it and saying to pete We've got a hit, and he was—he laughed. <laughs> it was like such an, an incongruous thought that we're in this little nothing demo studio in Polydor and and he said, "Oh, don't get your hopes up." Right? you know, <laughs> like oh, I was you know, we we just knew." I think you know, it's that line as well—the Clive line, da 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 da. You know, it's there's something so beautiful in that riff, in that guitar riff.
0: Yes. I know, like it, it lo- you
2: know. It makes you just love it, right?
0: I know, it is it is kind of yeah. boggling. And I know you mentioned yeah. Spotify, but it has it has been listened to six million times. That's amazing, really? isn't it? Six million and 240,000 well, plays. So, yes, I it...
2: I hope somebody's getting the money, because we certainly are not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? I know, it's, horrible. Yeah, it's a horrible yeah, yeah. thought, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when
2: Whatever. you came
0: to do... Because obviously Michael Miranda, did mm-hmm. that... When you listen, look at your three albums, is that the one that you feel the band, you know, that represents the band more than the other two?
2: It, well, it definitely represents the band with Claire, for sure, because th- those songs... That was the way that we worked then. Claire and I would, you know, get together in her freezing flat. We both remember this, right? It was so cold in her flat, and I don't know why she never had a fire going. We would get hot chocolate, and we would get under the duvets, (laughs) and we would write these songs, and then we would come to the rehearsal with, uh, with Clive and Richard the following day with these sort of bare bones of these... Of these songs yes. and so the the songwriting process changed completely you know when claire left i didn't ha- have that anymore which is why it was so sad and but then it became more like writing with the band you know we would just make things up and jam around in the studio together you know me live david and richard and then you know it became more like that's how that's how the songs got written
0: yeah i mean when you brought in kevin armstrong the, I mean, was that what? Um, what was the kind of the? Re- you know, how did that happen?
2: Well, Clive decided he wanted to ha- um, have a band with his girlfriend, and he left. So we were, you know, we still had another album to make for Polidor. so we went ahead and did it with with uh, Kevin. Clive didn't want to do it. He just he wanted to, He went off with Lorraine, and they they formed a band together, and you know.
0: So, yes, and then Kevin came along, and was that well, Ke-
2: Kevin came in really as a, i mean Kev- Kevin was already a pretty high level session player at that time, yeah, I mean he's playing is he already playing with Bowie, he was playing with uh, Iggy Pop who he still plays with that's right, right yes. so, so he came in more like a session player, I mean he's an incredible guitarist amazing and and then he also did some gigs with us, but he was never, you know. In a way, he was at another level to us, you know. In, I mean, he's a high-level session player, right? Yes. So yeah, yeah He, he uh, We didn't really have the money to take him on the to- on the road with us, you know.
1: No. <laughs> <Probably got laughs> <my pay. laughs> I
2: mean, it wasn't fair play to him, you know what I mean? It was not. You know, it was great playing with him, and um, and in fact, I, years later, you know, when he was playing with Bowie on Tin Machine, they were rehearsing in in new york and i was living there at the time and he he got me in the studio with steve jordan and drums and we did this whole demos together i mean he you know he was very supportive of me and um, musically and in fact he helped me record a sound that uh, even later in the late 90s called life is an adventure which wound up on that made on earth album i did with hector zazu yeah
1: um
2: that you know that was something it was I finding it so hard to record that song, it's like, it almost like kind of, it's a song that doesn't, I don't want to say that, doesn't seem to have a ground, it like floats. And it was very difficult to record that with Zazu, who is very sort of by the book, you know, things have got a structure and they need to be like this, even though he's very imaginative as well. But um, with Kevin, I was able to record it. I had to go to I knew that he would get it. You know, that he would get what I was trying to do, and and he did.
0: Yes. And did you? Uh, I mean, were you? You know, mm-hmm. recording the third album was that tricky without? You know, like with Claire going and Clive going. I mean, was was were, were you kind of much no. more? No. I just wondered how who was doing no. the kind of the main, the you know music and lyrics at that stage. I
2: mean, I'd always done most of the lyrics anyway, you know, so... Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit... I've, I'm, I'm the... You know, I, I... I mean, I love playing music, so I I was, you know, pretty, I suppose, a force within the band, right? Yeah. Um. So it was just a question of, you know, finding... I mean, we didn't want Clive to leave. He he just really wanted to have this band with his girlfriend, and he wanted to do that, so, you know, it's his life, so...
1: um,
2: But... Uh, but, you know, we just, you know, we also, you know, we were pretty professional at this point as well. You know what I mean? This is out there. We've been on the road for years and, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We knew how to do things. I know so then I mean as as the 80s because because for me I was you know became that kind of real indie kid in the 80s you know and obviously for me you know the Smiths were huge and you know from 83 to 87 you know it was like a bit of a glorious time and I got really obsessed with John Peel and you know just anything that he played I sort of loved from the Bundu boys to early rap to you know Martin Sebastian and and you know all that Bulgarian folk so you know John Peel was just like everything but you you know at 83 was the year that you know the band finishes was that um was that kind of did you feel like it was ne- inevitable at that stage i mean did you see it coming
2: um we had two choices at that point one to really take a step back and get we had been going too f- fast we needed to take a break for a year just do nothing or do some just let ourselves kind of uh, I don't know what's the word, marinate, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yes. You know, we had been pushing, 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 pushing. You've got to come up with a song. We've got a new album this year. No, 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 you know? So it it was really, we could have done that, just taken a break. But I think Richard, and he does, I think he regrets that a bit now, but um, he was like, come on, look, we're done. Let's just stop this now. We'd we been fired from Paladore, We'd lost the record deal, Um We'd had this single sanctuary that they had taken into the, it. They could, behind our backs, the producer Nick Lossop, had taken and butchered. If you ever hear that, I mean, you can literally hear at the jump where they decided it was too long for a single. You know, right? Um, and and they they were doing terrible things with us. You know, they, but they weren't. They never really knew what to do with us. That was the other thing. You know, if we had like continued to churn out. German film star, part two and part three. They would have been fine with that, right? But we couldn't do that. I mean, I'd, I'd be bored out of my mind doing that, you know. Yes. So they were like constantly. Well, we need another love song, okay? <laughs> you know, um but I'm not in love, so how can I write a love song? <laughs>
0: <You know? laughs> yes, I know.
2: right. I oh, will just pretend.
0: Yes. Um, Get into character. Know,
2: yeah. Right, so, you know, maybe we needed to be in one of those songwriting groups that you were talking about earlier on. You know, if we'd hooked up with one of those professional songwriters, go, okay, can you give us, like, German film star part two, you know? Yes. Um But, you know, it wasn't, I mean, you know, and I, I'm still like that. I mean, I literally... You know, luckily for me, I have huge amount. I, I mean, do you want to talk about? Yes. what I do
0: these days. Yeah, no. Before? So, so it's uh, so yeah. T- don't worry, I'm not just gonna because that's always um, <laughs> yeah. that's 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 yeah. So, what's kind of interesting is then what happens kind of next when the band finishes, and then you obviously think, yeah. my God, I'm only I don't know in your twenties, and then you think, well, 30. what, what yeah. thirties at that stage, yeah. and then yeah, um, yeah so that's then funny, what yeah. happens because you you then resurface in the nineties, don't you? Um, made on earth. But do what happens for the rest of the 80s and the early 90s?
2: Um, well, I came to live in New York, and in New York, the passions were not well known, not in the same ways, you know, they were in Europe, right? And so it was actually kind of all right, because I was sort of anonymous in a way that I hadn't been for a while. And then I just started doing these more like little clubs, adventures with different musicians, like with the had a group with a bassoonist called Claire de Brunner, and we played the Pyramid Club and little bars and things around, and then there's a cellist who's become very successful since then, uh, uh, J- uh, Julia Kent, and she plays with, um, oh my God, name's escaping me now, oh, that fantastic singer, uh, anyway, you can Google her, yes. She, you know, she's and she has a, a big solo career too as an experimental musician and cellist. So you know, this is all like sort of mid, late into mid, late '80s. So I started doing all of those, and just sort of getting away from the whole bass, drums, guitar band format, and just trying things with different sounds. And I started uh, exploring a lot more sound effects. You know, with using sound effects with my guitar to make up for my appalling technique. Yes. You know, put, put, put some delay on that and some distortion. It'll make you sound, you know, like you're playing Led Zeppelin, and um, but you know, just just really enjoying all of that, and uh, sometimes playing on my own, and then that's that's kind of what happened with the Hector Zazou thing. This other French guy who was in New York used to come to my gigs, and he, I got this phone call one day from this guy in France, going, "Can you come over here and and play on these records that we're making here?" so that's kind of what led into what happened in the 90s but all right. that stuff that I did not just made on Earth but it was the, the songs for the Cold Seas he, the record I did a lot of guitars for that, a lot of sound effect some of those guitars that I did he credited to another guitar player which I was not very happy about um, but anyway I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all over that record in terms of building electronic sounds and soundscapey kind of things and where he did an album of uh, uh, poems of Arthur Rambo set to music and I did a couple of songs for that one too.
0: So were you just at that stage kind of just developing kind of your musical kind of practice and sort of because obviously the one yeah. of the bands that we all got into was like people like dead can dance and the copto twins uh-huh. and there was other absolutely a lot yep. of other people yep. who i won't no. would be able to mispronounce their names by the way so i won't try but yes there was there was a lot of that kind of interest in it wasn't ambient, but it was kind of like some, intro, you know, like music that people like Robin Guthrie is still making today yep. and has got a new album coming out. And um, so were you were you sort of kind of exploring those kind of other kind of ways yeah. of recording?
2: Yeah, I, well, I wasn't so much recording, but as making up sounds and, you know, I always love to play live anyway, but I mean, obviously with Zazu, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of recording, but I didn't, in the 80s, I didn't do any recording at all. Um, well, that's not quite a little tiny bit, um, but um, nothing that ever got released. Uh, the other thing that happened was I wound up, you know, I was playing solo at a festival in Berlin in 1989, or no, what, the, the year after the war came down. It that must was have been, yeah, it must have been, yeah, came down in 89, right, so, the, so it was the Berlin Independence Festival, and I met all these Russians there, suddenly there were Russians everywhere right, because the wall was down and I'd been to Berlin before you never met any Russians right but here they all were and and so I started being invited to go and play in Russia and I did some recording with some Russian electronics uh, composer called Sasha Pantikin and then I I toured uh, in Russia on this incredible, actually probably my favourite tour of my entire life was on a ship on the Volga, and uh, two hundred people on the ship, and then we would stop off at different cities all the way down towards the Caspian Sea, and play these big concerts.
1: Right.
2: And in, in fact, in fact, uh, one of them there was a throat singer called Albert Kuvazin, who has a band called Yatka. It's a pretty popular throat singing band, kind of like a they like the punk throat singers. Yes. And. Uh, um and he and i we we did some we played together on one of the shows and we got back in touch with each other a year ago and i i sent him a new piece of music that i just finished and he recorded his vocal on it and sent it back and it's on the bandcamp. It's on. It's called Horizon. Ooh. And we've just got we just got booked last week to play at a festival in Gorky, Nizhny Novgorod, next summer. So we're going to do it to the piece together.
0: Oh, fantastic! Um, I do remember all yeah, I, yeah. Unfortunately, I can just think mm-hmm. of Gorky Park, the film, which is not very helpful. Right, right, right. I
2: think that's in Moscow, Gorky Park, is it? Go- yes, anyway, Nizhny Novgorod. It's called, It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small city on the Volga. Blimey, this is
0: fantastic. And then you, you yeah. also got involved. Actually, this is really recent, isn't it? this um, yeah. God, I'm jumping here. Raw Believer. Yeah. This is another, was this another kind of project that you worked on very recently?
2: Yes, yeah, so Raw Believer, that was with Julia, right? Julia Brightly, who um, we did a lot of music together in the, in the aughts, in oh, between 2002 and 2008 or 2009. Right. And, uh, and Role Believer was this project the three of us did... With Robbie, who's an incredible lyricist. I, did, did you listen you listened to some of it? Yes, right?
0: well, I listened to Mother, Son, Ghost, as I said, and I was just going kind of to listen to it. The, of the first, <laughs> and it was like, wow, this is quite <laughs> interesting. Um, you know, it's was like, oh, there's that's yeah. a lot. You know, I mean, again, it, musically it was kind of inter- fascinating, but lyrically it was like, oh, there's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, he's, he's an incredible lyricist. And in fact, I'm doing something with Robbie again, and we, we have a show uh, on the 5th. Of December in New York, we're going to be playing together with Marco and Robbie. Um, but uh, that collaboration was like that was like a kind of explosion. There was three albums, so two of them are up on Bandcamp, and there's a third one called "Hunt Me," still to come. Um, uh, Julia tragically died. It, that was an incredible. Mean, that band again, was like sort of near the near misses. We one of the. Yeah yeah yes, the drummer came to see us play and Julia had been doing front of house sound for the yeah, yeah yes. yes and so so uh, so Brian wanted us to go on the road with the AAS yeah, yes, but Robbie and his wife had a baby right at that time and there was no way that he could go out on the road the first first and only child right you know so that you know went by he he wound up because he, he he's a uh, stay at home dad and uh, and his wife is the career person yeah so that kind of ex- exploded or imploded but it's i it's so good i mean raw believer i don't know there's a song called this country that is it's, it's going to be on the third album anyway there's whole, all kinds of stuff on there right and julia you know was very very brilliant with sound and a brilliant musician brilliant drummer bass player guitarist whatever you know she could play anything. Um, And also could mix sound and did all the production on 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 those records.
0: Yes. Did you say she died? Uh,
2: She did. She died in God, 2014. Oh, crying. Oh, it was really sad. She she was she was uh, a record. She was preparing for a tour with a duo called The Knife. Right. And they're from Sweden, I think. And she just. Started feeling incredibly unwell, and went back to London, and I uh, wound up. I mean, she died like twelve days later. She had cancer throughout her body, and yeah.
0: Oh crikey! Yeah, now so, I've heard. So yes, sad. I know. Anyway. So so your your yeah. work that you do with Marco, because I've yeah. I've only I've only come across that on YouTube, and um, so have you got that? Is that at all available? Is this kind of also just an, a project? That it's um, currently sort of still being developed.
2: So, oh, well, that's all. It's all on Bandcamp, so you can find it. I mean, anybody who wants to f- listen to it, you can. It's sort of unlimited streaming. You can buy it if you want, but yes. you can, uh, it's streaming <laughs> on, on Bandcamp. Um, but that was that was a project we met at a New Year's Eve party uh, at the very very end of 2019 right before COVID, right? And yeah. um, and we just, there was a party up here at a friend's place uh, up here. Marco and his husband live in New York um, in the city, but uh, so we just kind of started talking about music, and I said, "Oh, just, yeah, send me some of your files, I'll add some guitars, I'll, you know, whatever, and so he started sending me, that's what happened, he just started sending me stuff on, uh, you know, WAV files, and then I would add and then then because of COVID he was home all the time instead of he was has a job, you know, so he was wasn't working and um, and so he had a lot more time and and it, the project grew way way more, you know, deeply then and then and then we wound up doing like these little kind of outdoor concerts and gardens up around here, porch concerts and things so people could be outside and you know, one of them our friends brought all their friends, and they sat on our porch. I sat, they sat on the porch of my house, and, and we played inside, opened all the windows, and then somebody who was there, at that time she books a lot of gigs, and now we get, we're get we getting booked to play at these punk gigs. Nice. <laughs> Obviously, if you listen to it, it's not punk music, but somehow, weirdly, it kind of fits <laughs> in amongst three other punk bands, and you get this kind of... More atmospheric stuff. I think I feel like it maybe gives everybody a rest, you know, before they have the next onslaught. But um, <laughs>
0: anyway, <laughs> yeah, because because
2: because
0: on the album which is mm-hmm. much older, which is the one actually it's crying now it's twenty years. Wheels, you did an album called yep. Wheels, didn't you? Which yeah. is seven tracks. Yeah. That yeah. that features an incredible lineup of musicians and percussion and Tibetan monks as well, doesn't it? So did you, well, with, yes. your, with your mm-hmm. musical direction at this stage, were you going through quite a kind of a spiritual path or was it, you know, a detour or was it just something?
2: Uh, well, to be honest, I, I, I wanted to make a, um, a record that actually just was just expressing sounds the way I feel, so boring listen to musicians talk about themselves.
0: <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of interesting.
2: Um, is, okay. Um, but it was one of my sisters said, Oh, why don't you base it on the chakras? And oh that brilliant. A kind of
0: oh, what a great right? idea. So,
2: right. And it just kinda of gave me that thread because then you start at the base. so it's a boom and you can just go move you just move at the body and I, I literally would just like say, Where do I feel? physically where am I feeling the vibrations, right? Mm. And that's you know, so I would just work I worked from on that, you know, um so yes. up until, you know, the top chakra that comes out of the top of your head, which I totally believe in chakras. I mean, that's not even a thing for me. I'm, there are people who can see those, right? Yes. I can't, but there are no, people I who can see them, right? They're
0: it's, real. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just all there. No, I always felt really yeah. inadequate when people kept on about, oh, yes, I can see this or I can feel that. And I'd be going, oh, I can't. It just doesn't happen for me. They said, well, it probably, it's probably because I'm too cynical and I don't believe... I don't know. I mean, you know, I always... It always this funny old number, isn't it, really? But that sounds... So basically, I mean, he says... Um, you yes. you you've sort of continually focused on your you know your creative because I was creative kind of journey in art yeah. haven't you you haven't ever yeah. really yeah. stopped no. because because you know as, as I might have mentioned hope I might have done but at the beginning you know like having done a lot of these interviews there were a lot of bands in the 80s huge amount thousands mm-hmm. probably and the few, you know, did the five years and went, that's it, I'm out of here, and then come back. And there's few who have kept it slightly going in some way, sometimes having to sort of, you know, couple it with a sort of daytime job or a part-time oh, yeah. job. But, totally. I mean, it, it is yeah. quite interesting that you've really also just stuck with the, the kind of, no, I'm not going to put the guitar in the cupboard and, you know, for 20 or 30 years because it's just it's just been too harrowing so you you know you've you've obviously enjoyed you know making music and collaborating with other people
2: oh for sure um i mean it's also not even particularly something that i can choose i i was just talking to an old friend who's a dj out in st louis and we hadn't spoken for about 10 years and and i got back in touch and he, he had uh having a really hard time making ends meet musically. He's yes. an incredible drummer, and he plays. You know, he plays with some big bands. He has done, and he's also a DJ. And Vernon Reed he plays with him sometimes. You know, that kind of that kind of music. And um, and he said that he had gone and worked for Amazon for two years, but he just fell into a state of total depression, and that's what would happen to me, if I, whenever I go, this is ridiculous, you're never going to make any money out of this barber, just, you know, or someone would say to me, I mean, that's the game for the young, you know, I remember one of my sisters saying that to me, you know, it's the game for the young, and anyway, alright, but if I try to stop, right, I can't, I just, I just plummet into depression, so, you know. Yes, like, I mean, like, it is right. a bit
0: weird because at the beginning, somewhere down there, you know, we're talking about the 1800s and the church and the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And I think but art, music, you know, painting, poetry, you know, it's, it's, it's what life's about. You know, it's not always about yeah. doing the night shift, is it? And, and just making ends meet. You know, there has to be more to it than that, doesn't it, really? So I don't think, I think the one about the young is just like, Wow. It's like when people would say, oh, isn't, aren't the Ronan Stones too old to be doing it? And it's like, well, but what else are you going to do? I mean, I can't be bothered to go down that cul-de-sac of, you know, can you still be singing? And, you know, it's like they yeah. can do what they want. I mean, who cares? You know, it's like and obviously it gives them that little bit more encouragement. And, you know, and obviously... When they're on stage, you know they have to sort of you know have more bladder control for at least you know th- forty <laughs> minutes before they have to run off and quickly you know have an instrumental or whatever they do, and then you know what I mean. But it just it keeps you going, doesn't it? You know, having yeah. the oh well, by the way we've got a world tour coming up, I better keep alive. You know, I mean, what the hell? You know, right. it's it's brilliant. I think it's you know it's got to be done. I
2: hear you. I, I hear totally you. agree. <laughs> I totally I, I, and I, I, and everything that you said there too about music and art and these are the other are, are things about being alive right It's absolutely not about you know accumulating stuff and money and all of these things that people think you know so the richest people they may have a very sweet life in many many ways but there's very a lot of sadness in that world too yes right? i know they are I like not that. happy a lot of the time
0: Definitely not. I mean, you know, no one, no one gets to their <clears throat> old age and think, oh, you know, I wished I'd gone to more meetings. I really wished I'd done more meetings in my life. Or, you know, and I suppose it was, I'd I, made
2: another million.
0: Yeah, I wish <laughs> I, I mean, I did a really, you know, it was a great guy, uh-huh. and he, he's very funny. He was a guitarist in Twisted Sister, and I didn't like the uh-huh. band at all, but. J.J. French, he's just got a fantastic, you know, he's he's got a very good story in rap and about all the, you know, the ups and downs of being in a band and stuff like that. And he said, you know, uh, if a multimillionaire was on their deathbed, you know, and they said, Do you want to swap with a 25-year-old kid living on the street? You know, you wouldn't even blink, would you? you go, yep, I'll, I'll be that 25-year-old kid with no money on the street. You know, I, yeah. you know, I don't want to be this old yeah. dude who's kind of, you know, got billions yeah. but have only got another, you know, couple of years to live. You would... You would swap it in a second, wouldn't you? You know, you just think, I don't care, you know. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. So exactly. it's, it doesn't, yeah. re- you know, it doesn't really, you know. I mean, it's it, it you know, there's some things you've got to. You, you you don't want to worry about too much it's like you know being 18 is great when you're sort of scrabbling together to pay the electricity bill but you know so you want to get beyond that but you don't really want to spend too much time in meetings and networking with people you don't really like just to possibly get a job promotion really so you know you want to hit, write that song don't you that's the next thing and that's um that's it, you yeah. know. But it's brilliant. I mean, I, I have to say, I know, you, you know, you probably think, oh, no, don't just talk about the passions, which is fair enough, I don't blame you. But it is still great to hear not just the single, but the, your body of work is just fantastic, you know, and I think it's always great to hear what people did and then continue to do, you know, because it is it is a fascinating story and, you know, and it is life, isn't it, you know, because it's all coupled, yeah. like you said. You know, with with things that are going on that you you know you process and deal with, and you hopefully grow and have develop a certain wisdom in life. So yeah. you know, yeah. and while we're you know, we still can go and um, enjoy the moon, and it doesn't cost a penny. So there you go. Right, I
2: know it has still has not shown up here yet, but it'll be it'll be here any second. It will be here soon, <laughs> and then you think, my God, um,
0: it's good. There
2: is actually, yeah, there's this guy here. Funnily enough, he's in the ne- next stage over, but he has this thing called Rubellan Remasters. And he did—he put out a Passion CD, because none of the Passion records ever came out in CD. And he did this compilation. It's under the banner of Sanctuary, the third album.
1: Oh, yeah. But
2: it's incredible. I mean, when we heard it, we couldn't believe what a beautiful work that he had done. And he got hold of all of these... Tr- tracks that I didn't even know existed I don't know if they John Peel tracks or they were like demo tracks and the different versions of songs that are on all three of the albums are on it and it is really it's a really really good record Right. He put that out about a, a couple of years ago
0: is that um, called, what's the, the, the it's comp- called
2: Sanctuary, Sanctuary. and San- Rubellin Remasters is the guy he just does these sort of labours of love I think they are, you know what I mean he gets bands that he Really likes who maybe didn't he feels get attention or didn't get their CDs out or whatever, and we were lucky enough to be one of those. And he he did this version of Sanctuary that all like, I know David Richard and myself just love it. I mean we I I don't like to listen to my old stuff at all, but this one I heard it. I, oh my God, and he he made it sound better than the original vinyl with his remastering, you know. Yes. Too. But then he also got all these other tracks too. So there's like Six or seven other 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 tracks on there that are, yeah, like I
0: could say, recordings. Right. There. Well, I have to look up, find, try uh-huh. and find it because um, uh-huh. cause it's not on, it's not on Wikipedia. Is it? It's like the the Passion singles on Lulu Music, Passion, okay. Passion plays on Polydor, and then obviously your last studio album was Sanctuary on Pol- from Polydor, wasn't it?
2: Right. I, I don't know who takes care of the passion space, but I can update that, actually. I should, pro- I should find a link for you. I will, I'll do that. I'll find oh, I see. Yes,
0: I see there is a, a, there is a solo bit. Pas- um, Sanctuary was reissued on CD with nine bonus tracks. Oh, there you are.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: I'll have to try and locate where that is and, and find it. Yeah, because it's interesting, because there was another band from Manchester called Easter House, and they did one album, and... Um, and then I tried to do a second, but things weren't uh-huh. going terribly well. And then a fan had sort of, he was an engineer, got hold of it and just kind of remastered it and gave it back to the, the guitarist. And he was like, yeah. oh, my God, this sounds amazing. You know, you, yeah. uh, the technology that this guy must have got. Yes. He, he didn't have the master tapes. He somehow managed uh-huh. to, you know, have the software that kind of pulled it all wow. apart. And um, it's kind of extraordinary, really, what, what people can do now. And um, yeah, so that's kind of available. I mean, it's brilliant. I'll have to try and check that out, actually. But I have to say, I really loved listening to your John Peel sessions today. Um, so that's been, you know, quite chilling yeah. really. It's just nice just to hear where people have, you know, like, you know, those influences that you think, oh, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. And I mean, if you, oh, yeah, if you could have whispered in your ear, your 16 year old self or 18, you know, a little kind of word of wisdom or something like that to say, oh, yeah, either do this or I wouldn't do that if I was you. Or, oh, you know, what I mean, if, is, is there anything that you would have just wanted to sort of mentioned or just you know just kind of oh, by the way where well,
2: to start on that one <laughs> uh yeah right uh, no, I could I can't even begin there um I um but actually I'm not sure that would have anything to do with music you know um because I think in, for me uh, uh, probably you know I would have negotiated us a better deal with Polydor when we signed. but We we didn't realize what was going on business-wise, you know. Yes. So, you know, we were very naive and we didn't have a manager. So maybe something there I would have said, like, hey, come on, you know, you need to realize that you actually have a little more power in this situation. Um, yes. So, uh, but maybe that, but I don't know, you know. Is it the um, case that they
0: do you mm-hmm. own the music now, or does uh, you? No,
2: good lord! They, no, no. I mean, that. I mean, we have never had a royalty for a film star, ever. I mean, they keep. You know, whenever anyone tries to track any of it down, they go, "Oh, you're still recouping your advances." I mean, we had tiny advances. So, how, you know, that that uh, song has been on so many compilations. It's been used in a lot of different places, right? So. Uh, there's no way that they haven't recouped at this point, but it's just, I mean, just the getting through the kind of... Now it's all united, right? No, it's universal, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's all that just... The bureaucracy of it. And then, you know, you get kind of close to somebody who actually may have some access to the fact that they should be sending us a royalty statement and they know the money is coming in and then they disappear, you know? So... Um, yes. No, I know. It's,
0: it's yeah. you know, there's some terrible stories. I remember doing an yeah, interview yeah. with Les from the Bay City Rollers and it was just a bit like, uh-huh. had, you know, when he sort of just couldn't take it anymore, walked away and it was like, oh, oh by the way, you've got no money. And it's like, I must yes. have some money. It's like, no, sorry, you've got no money. And then, you know, the poor bloke, you know, struggled for the rest of his life, you know, dealing with, you know, the fallout of... What he had to go through, but, and and not even having any money to, you know, pay the rent and and anything. So it's yeah, it's just horrible. It's um yeah, they're yeah. not nice stories, are they? You know, it's not, they
2: uh, aren't. I mean, you know, all of us are in. You know, the the surviving members of the passions are in pretty good shape. We've had pretty good lives. You know, when we've done things like you know, I know Claire's had a very successful life, and you know, making uh, videos, and she's an incredibly intelligent woman. So. You know, we're all around and we're all healthy, and you know, it's not, uh, it's not, a, it's not a tragedy in our case. You know, apart from the original singer and the original guitarist. So yes, um, but the um, but so, you know, yeah, you know, we have we've had good lives, so I'm not, you know, we've nothing to complain about. And, and it's that, great that you've that, got you've got
0: projects coming up as well, which is just oh, yeah, the main thing, I know. and that's. Oh, yeah. And that's always good, you know, because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't really want to go to one of those '80s weekenders, do you?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, and they're always asking the passions to reform. I'm like, oh my God, mm. we get every time they, they, uh, you know, somebody approaches us, the, the money goes up and up and up, you know, and, and we're like, I, I can't even imagine. I could, I could imagine maybe us getting together with some friends in a pub, you know, and mm. playing, but. You know, it would be, yes, I know. Yeah.
0: It is strange, you know, but they, they yeah. you know, they do, roll, they've, there's a real industry now and they just roll this they're kind you. of thing around, yeah. and it, you know, it's kind of amazing. But the good thing is, which I think yeah. is quite nice, is that a lot of those live recordings, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you probably avoid them, but they're all on YouTube now, aren't they? All those kind of old grey whistle tests and the... Is it the yeah, the Oxford? Yeah, is it yeah. the Oxford Road Show and all those kind yeah. of performances? Yeah. And uh, I just you know, I th- I I must admit, with age, I do like um, art, people who have really started archiving their their stuff. And I think that's, I think it's great because um, yeah, it is such a it you know it is a, such a creative time and and especially that period was such a creative time as well with. You know, on on with so little resource, you manage to sort of yeah. make so much, and it's and it's still quite an amazing story. You know, everyone's kind of got an amazing story, but I do think that's quite fantastic. So um yeah.
2: Well, yeah, and I mean, um, from from me, but well, have we talked enough about me yet? <laughs> um, but
0: no, that's fine. <laughs> um,
2: uh, but uh, just to say also, you know, I've been, for the past few years, I've been, you know, the resident composer for a dance company too so that's been an amazing experience you know and obviously our shows all got cancelled because of covid right but we're still i still work with the director um you know on she's doing podcasts it's a feminist acrobatic dance company called lava and you know i do the music for their performances and you know they're a really really popular dance company here so that's been extraordinary we're starting to do workshops now for the kids over in this area and and eventually there will be lava shows again you know when we can all get our vaccinations or whatever
0: yes no that's good because um i mean is it a little bit like is it um richard alston or the ram ram bear no ram bear dance company isn't there and wayne mcgregor who i suppose are people i've seen in the uk who all the art centres and the theatres around here. Is it contemporary dance that you do music for?
2: It's more uh, acrobatic, so it's a lot of like trapezes and silks and uh, you know uh,
0: Cirque du Soleil
2: Yeah Yes
1: yeah.
2: Mm. Um, I mean she studied with Merce Cunningham so she does come from, the director comes from, um, you know a whole uh, world of of experimental dance, but she has channeled it through into this into acrobatics. So fantastic! Yeah, they, you can check them out on uh, yeah, they've uh, things on, um, on the on the on the internet. And in fact, she's making what she's done is she's, she's been compiling Sarah, her name Sarah East Johnson. She's been compiling the film. They've had a lot of footage over the years, so she's been making films recently with you know to to uh, put up onto the internet.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'll have to check that yeah. out, actually. We're always very excited by dance companies. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Is that, is that uh-huh. lava as in Brooklyn?
2: L- L-A-V-E-A, yeah, as in volcanic lava.
0: Yes, but is the website lavabrooklyn.org? Oh, yep, that'll be it.
2: Yep. That's
0: it. Oh, yep. well, I'll check that out later. We always, uh-huh. like, we always like to find new uh-huh. things. And um, Yes, oh, yes, this is very exciting. Well, it's great. You're, you're around so many young people as well right it always
2: helps i know it? i know yes oh know.
0: god this is brilliant. And, oh. they,
2: and they like what i do <laughs> 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 and i can sit in the background and uh and do it and um so yeah that's so much and she sarah has been encouraging me to actually put all the music that i've been doing for them up on online too. you know to make a band camp page for it um i've sort of kept all of that kept kept that sort of separate because I feel it's more to do with their live performances right so i you know I'm not gonna you know um put it out there it, for me, it's all sort of bound up with what the dancers are doing right rather than just about me making music but she's sarah has they yeah, recently been encouraging me to do that so but they're long pieces you know they're like twenty minutes long and stuff so. Oh, that sounds
0: fantastic. We love that, don't we? The 70s, you know, the political period of the 70s and 80s, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's the years and, and it's great to see a feminist acrobatic dance company. That's just, you know, that's, that's what we need. You know, you mentioned yes. Spare Rib, you know, and, there was, yeah. and there's been a lot of um, stuff about Greenham Common recently as well. There's been a fantastic uh-huh. book. Because there's a yeah. very good book out about the banners, which I did an interview with the person who's, come, who's done the book. And it's, it's just brilliant, you know, it's just really well done. But I didn't realise all these things about the banners and all the artwork around Greenham Common. And I didn't realise, that the other thing that there was within Greenham Common there was these different colour camps so depending on your you know as a woman you could go to different places within you know different camps so that if you were this sort of person you could go there and they that sort of person there was like almost demographic, demographic kind uh. of feminist you know areas within the Greenham Common movement so I thought that was quite interesting really so you didn't have to get stuck with the same people you know so um yeah, it's a, it's an interesting world. You know, I thought, well, that's that's something I've learned today. So, that's good.
1: Yeah. But anyway, yeah.
0: that's that's very okay. that's very cool. Anyway, look, thank you ever so yeah. much for this. And yeah. if you want, I can always, um, when I put it out, I can send you the link and then you could always, I don't know, use it or put it I'd,
1: I'd love that. Yeah, yeah, that
0: would be fascinating. Love, but thank love. you ever so much for your time. And I really appreciate this because obviously it's just brilliant. And I, I always get very excited when I hear what people's kind of latest projects are, actually. It's always interesting. And um, I'll fo- you. I'll follow yeah. Lava you now as well as Marco. <laughs> there you go. It's good. Oh ah, right. It's good. Exactly. Well, good oh, luck. Yeah, and
2: then come to Italy and see us play in the summer. In yes, we're playing there at the end of June, somewhere near Venice. That he's yeah, the castle near Venice.
0: Sounds oh. perfect, doesn't it? That sounds
2: like, right.
0: That does sound good. But look, take care, and yeah. all the best, and all um, right. yeah, have a great yep. have a great winter and. Um, We'll all come up smiling in the spring. Okay, take yeah. care there. Thanks again right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. bye Bye Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.
0: And that, dear listener, is just... Um, yes, I love leaving that last billion because it's always very fumbly and, um, you know, the ability not to say goodbye very quickly is um, one of my many strengths in life. Anyway, look, massive thank you to... Barbara Gogan. Forgive me the time for that interview. That was uh, her life in music, including the Passions and much, much more. Go and check them all out and hopefully she'll be doing more stuff very soon. Anyway, this has uh, been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I've probably said that many times before, but um, I like to repeat myself. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. And also, yeah, you can um, yeah listen to all these other interviews on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. You get the gist. If you want to know about indie pop and a bit about David Bowie, check it out and um, just enjoy. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.